0: Good morning. So we've been working our way through the Paul's letter to the Philippians. We've noticed that joy is a theme here, and we learn about joy as we we've been learning about joy as we've gone through. Um, last week we learned that joy is found on the far side of love. So if you want to get to joy, you get to love, and we learned as well if you want to get to love, you have to get to freedom. It's it's. Because we're free in Christ, free from the burden of believing that we might not be acceptable to God, when you take that insecurity, that vertical insecurity out of the way, replace it with vertical security, it leads to horizontal ability to love. And on the far side of love, we find joy. So joy is found on the far side of love. And this morning we'll find out that joy is rooted in righteousness. Look what it says. Philippians 3, 7-11. It's in your worship folder, so read along if you care to. Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish as Paul audits his ERS return, that's not IRS, it's ERS, not internal revenue, but eternal revenue service. Okay, at any As he audits his return, he noticed that he is listed as spiritual assets. Some things he sees. Now, to be spiritual liabilities, if you've ever had to audit a return or had it audited, some things that are listed as assets have to be changed from that column. They're not assets, they're liabilities. And as Paul kind of reviews his spiritual life, he has listed some things as assets. You know, These are reasons why I can be confident that I'm going to be accepted. By God, But then what he ends up doing, he learns, ooh, these things that I have counted on as being reasons why I might be confident now have to be put in a different column. They're not assets, they're liabilities. Um, let's briefly review Paul's life, find out a little bit about the place he grew up and what led him to have confidence. And then we'll try to figure out where we put liabilities and assets spiritually. Uh, Paul was born probably about the same time that Jesus was. Uh, Somewhere between 4 and 5 BC, that's the best guess we have as to when Jesus was born, and Paul would have been born about that same time. He was born in Tarsus. It was a very important city in Paul's day. It was a large trade center. On the Mediterranean, the general population was pretty populous, about a quarter of a million people. It was a, it was a up and coming city. People came to Tarsus from all over the Roman Empire. It was a prosperous city and there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, the Romans made it the capital city of the province, of the province and gave it special status. It allowed, the Roman government allowed Tarsus to govern Itself separately. So they didn't have to come under the same type of oversight that most of the cities came under. And it also meant that the city of Tarsus did not have to pay taxes to Rome that other cities had to, had to pay, which was a huge boon. And what the merchants of Tarsus meant, that means they didn't have to put duty taxes on some of their goods. And what they did then, they invested the Merchants of Tarsus invested in good roads and education and public health and beautification projects. It was really, really a neat city. Um, there were mountain slopes. The mountains of Tarsus had uh, a lot of goats there, and you're going to understand why. They were black goats, and what they would do, they would take the hair of these goats and form it into a kind of fabric, Cilician fabric, and that fabric was good for a number of things. It made great tents, and that's where Paul developed his his ability to make tents. He would have learned that in Tarsus, and the cloth, the material that came from that region, was great for that. Throughout the Roman world, Tarsians were known for the quality of their tents, and the city was known for the quality of its education. Tarsus was a university city. Merchants, again, they were very generous because they didn't have to pay taxes, but they invested the funds, and so they attracted educators from all over the Roman Empire. Uh, no expense was spared in the recruitment of these educators, and they came to teach there. Paul was born a Roman citizen, and probably into a prominent, wealthy family in the city. Rome didn't grant citizenship to everyone living in Tarsus. In fact, it was fairly rare, and for Jews it was extremely Rare there were some real benefits to being a Roman citizen um, when you were tried and found guilty you couldn 't be crucified or something that your death was quick If you felt like you were judged inappropriately, you could appeal to the emperor and your case would be bumped up like going up to the Supreme Court. There were a number of things that people and people really coveted uh, being a citizen uh, to be Become a citizen, you either had to pay a lot of money or if you were from a family of social standing for four generations or more, if you had the legacy of being a family that had been prominent over a period of time, then you would grandfather in the next generation of individuals. They would be Roman citizens as well. So Paul's father's father, father, somebody, did something up the chain and Some speculate that when the Romans went to war, some of Paul's ancestors supplied them with quality tents that allowed the Roman army to be successful, dry, etc. But whatever happened, somebody was granted citizenship, and it was passed down, so it was passed down to Paul, and he held the privileged status of a Roman citizen. Again, an, an honor rarely conferred upon Jews, and safe to say. We'll learn that he became a Pharisee in Israel. No one else as a Pharisee was a Roman citizen. It's being unheard of. Judaism, Paul was raised as a Jew, and an Orthodox Jew within Tarsus, which was a Greek city, but they had, a, in the Roman Empire, they say about 20, 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. A lot of Jews, and they were respected. Because contrary to Greek mythology, which all the gods are sleeping with this god and messing around with that god, it was kind of chaotic. They liked Judaism because it was a little more sane, ethical. They believed in one god. They had a firm moral code. And some of the Romans looked at their eat, drink, and be merry lifestyle, and then they looked at the Jews and they said, you know what? That looks better. And so Jews came to have a a sense of esteem and were looked up to within the Roman Empire. Um, synagogues were scattered throughout much of the empire, and synagogues were the places where Jews gathered for different purposes. They social functions. They would hear the message from a rabbi or a qualified layman. They were educated by the rabbis in the synagogues. So that's where Paul would have gone to school beginning at the age of five, the age that we begin, Education then was different. It would have started with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy at age five, and learning to read it in Hebrew and memorize it. And then, not only these things, when they got to the age of ten, they would go from these first five books to all the stuff that was written about them. Now, this stuff wasn't written down. It was conferred to rabbi, to rabbi, to rabbi, so they not only knew the first five books of the Bible, they knew what all the other rabbis said about them. They had photographic minds. They just remembered all this kind of stuff, and they would pass it down. And so what Paul then would do at the age of 10, he would start to learn about what all the rabbis said about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would, they would apply them and get to learn those things. Um, they did write down a version. It was called the, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. Now, they had this oral thing that was passed down. They called this the oral Torah or they gave it another word Mishnah. Have you ever heard Mishnah? That's the oral teaching. They put that into writing probably in the 4th and 5th centuries A.D. 6200 pages long. Small writing and and with Hebrew starts from it. It's really weird. Hebrew starts from the back of the book to the front. And so when you are reading Hebrew, you start at the back and you turn the pages. It's kind of weird. But that's 6,200 pages, and that's what Paul would have started to study at age 10. By age 13, he would have finished it. 6,200 pages over three years. At that time, he would have been ready for formal, graduate-level, rabbinical training to be a rabbi or a Pharisee. What Paul did... He had a married sister apparently that lived in Jerusalem. So Paul went to stay probably with her and her husband, and he studied at the uh, the school of Gamaliel. Um, that was he was Gamaliel was the greatest educator of his time. He had a limited number of students, and somehow Paul got in. He had a top notch. Theolog- theological education just he had a, he was very well bred very well educated, and so he was very devout, very intense, very bright. Um, Paul tells us that all these accomplishments a life centered around the understanding of God in the Bible, everything centered around that uh, he counted those assets now as damaging, as spiritual liabilities. All the things he learned, he saw as getting in the way of a closer connection with God. And we need to understand, why would he think that? Uh, Paul perceived with horror that the things he had viewed as benefiting him had in reality been working to destroy him again, that's a fairly discouraging thing. If you're taking eye drops, a number of you might take eye drops to improve your vision, to correct some kind of eye problem. It would be like taking eye drops, and you're not seeing well, but you are convinced that these eye drops will help, and learning that they're destroying your sight. Paul had been doing things to increase his vision of God, and what he came to understand, this God, whom I thought I was getting to know, I actually came to the place that I was trying to kill him and his people. Rather than help me know him, these things were getting in the way. He noted that with horror. And again, it would have been very difficult for him. But he writes that, and in Philippians, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's talk about spiritual liabilities. And when we think of liabilities, we're thinking of what we don't want to put our faith in. Faith has an object. When we talk about faith, it's not just a general belief in something. Faith always has to have an object. And what Paul put his faith in was all the things that he had learned, all the degrees that he had gotten. He put his faith in those things, and he came to understand that he put them in things that weren't good to put faith in. What should we put our faith in? That's what he, he, but he defined faith as within the letter. This might be a definition of faith that, Faith is the act of counting as loss all those things that might be considered as grounds for self-confidence before God. Here's what faith is. I'm standing on top of these things here, and I'm standing on whatever these things are, because I think that because I'm doing these things, I have confidence before God. Paul was standing on a lot of these things, and this is what Paul defines as faith. Nope, that doesn't do it. One part of faith is moving from the grounds of confidence that are really not assets. They're liabilities, things that we might feel we are pretty confident of, that when the role is called up yonder, I'll be there because I'm standing on these. And faith is, at one level, I have to change where I'm standing. That's what Paul had to come to. That's what faith is. True righteousness is... Obtained by abandoning one's own efforts, putting confidence not in what I do for him. And faith goes into what he does for me. Faith is the opposite of seeking to establish one's own righteousness. Look what it says in Romans 9.30. It's in your worship folder. He asks a question. What should we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. I included an article and they We're not going to read it, but it's about righteousness as the ticket to heaven. It talks about this passage. If you want to have something to read that goes into some detail, read through that, and it'll talk more about it. We're not going to read it together. I just wanted you to have that. It goes on. Um, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were by works. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What well, Paul writes is this Gentiles weren't trying hard. And Jews he knew were trying really hard, and they stood on the fact that we are trying really hard to do the ten things God said and to try to, we're not going to remember all the 6,200 pages of things that we need to know and do but we're going to try our best and we'll sit under and we'll go to the synagogue and we'll listen to the rabbi. He knows the 6,200 pages and we'll try to listen to him and do what he says. and, And if we do that, we're confident. You know, So I've been going to the synagogue for a long time. And what Paul ends up coming to is understanding that that's not the grounds for confidence, that he came to the place where he transferred his trust. And this is really what faith is from what he did for God, to what God did for him. Again, that's what faith is. It rests in something. Um, You believe these seats are could hold you up. If you didn't believe that they would hold you up, you wouldn't sit in them. Um, I believe that seat will hold me up. It's right next to David. Um, Why isn't it holding me up? I'm not sitting in it. And it can be the same thing we can know about Christ. We can know that what God sent his son to do. He came so that Jesus dies, so that we can be accepted as righteous. I can know about that. But if I'm not resting my weight on it, I'm not believing in it. That's biblically what faith is. Not just intellectually knowing something, but doing what you're doing with the seat. You're putting the weight of yourself on the seat. That's what it means to put your faith in what Christ has done. If God, I've asked this question before, if you were to stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you in, what would you say? There's a pronoun. If you would have asked me that um, growing up, and this is what I would have said. I was an altar boy beginning at age seven, I think. I went to church every Sunday and... In the 40 days, most days during Lent, I was an boy for a long time, was almost a priest. And What pronoun am I using? What does that say about who I am trusting in? The pronoun you use is what you're placing your faith in. I say I, 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 I. What does that say about who I'm trusting in? Eternal life righteousness is given to those who transfer their trust from what they have or haven't done for God to what God did for them. Seeing as, oh, I did this, and I remember being at church, and there was me, there was 11-, 12-year-old Mike, and then there was 65-year-old Mrs. Boy, and then there was 70-year-old Mr. Callahan, and, and all these other guys. There was nobody Closer than 50 years my age. And I'm thinking, I'm good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I, I don't see any other kids here, do you? <laughs> and I was convinced that I was getting A's in spirituality. And somebody came, and then I ended up hearing about faith is transferring your trust from what you've done for God to what he's done for you. And, and Mike, and I'll talk about it in a minute, I was angry. I mean, I've really tried hard for a lot of years to, to amass a pretty good resume spiritually. And to have to give that up, it just didn't make much sense to me. But that's what the, that's what righteousness, that's what it seems to be. I want you to picture, talked about this before, the bar of a high jump. Yeah, you got that, the bar of a high jump? Let's say that bar represents the standard God would deem to be acceptable. So if you do these things, think these things, have these desires, if you can pull that off, you can go over the bar, and if you go over the bar, you are seen as acceptable. The act of or the process of becoming accepted that's righteousness. Your de- righteousness is you're declared to be acceptable. So, if I if I look at the standard, okay, I have to do this and this and this. Okay, if I go to church, when the next person is fifty years older than I am, and okay, I'm good. So I felt like I was, pu- I felt like I was sailing over. And righteousness would be me sitting on the far side of the bar. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um what was I placed my confidence in? But let's okay, you got this bar though? We all have a sense for if we're clearing the bar or not. We kind of have an idea, don't we? What God demands of us. Are you clearing the bar? There's a number of ways we might determine are we clearing the bar or not. There's Ten Commandments. Those are a way to kind of assess Stealing, dealing falsely. You know the, the hardest thing about the standard? You can get through one through nine and do pretty good. You know, the, the one that's going to get you, anybody know what the 10th commandment is? Don't covet. You know what don't covet is? Don't want anything that your neighbor has that you'd like. Okay. <laughs> you can control some things. Coveting is not one of them. I, we cannot control what we think. So, therefore, you might get through one through nine and say, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> What's that thing about, don't commit adultery, I'm good. Uh, lust is adultery, okay, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on, okay. Don't murder, oh, yeah, I haven't offed anybody. Anger is murder, yeah, let's, let's, get, let's get, keep, keep it going, let's keep it going. Here. Um, okay, <laughs> the, and then you end up getting up to the 10th. And that's the one that ends up, you know, that just kind of gets passed off. Uh, None of us. Coveting is the uncontrollable sin. Try to control thinking. Try that. Go by your neighbor and notice the car that he has, the car that you want, and say, I don't want to think about wanting that car. Or like, rooting for Kansas and, and seeing what's happening. Something like that. <laughs> See? So JC's not coveting, it's just it's... okay. <laughs> so here's here's the deal. It's you know it's why Jesus came, Jesus sailed over the bar. And he stands on the other side of that bar now. Jesus was declared righteous because of what he did. But here's the deal now. The reason he did that, so that when we place our faith in him, what he earned is credited to us as a gift. When I put my confidence not in what I did, but what he did for me, I end up being where Jesus is, which is where? With the bar behind me the bar is behind me. If the bar is behind me, that means I don't have to continue to try harder to do things to be accepted because if the bar is behind me, what's already done? And tell me what the problem is if I think the bar is in front of me. I got turned around. I, I ended up standing back here on what I did for him. I, did it again. I, that's not the way I'm turning. I'm turning this way. In Christ, the bar is behind me. That's what it, that's what Paul learned about receiving righteousness. It's faith in what he did, not faith in what we do. That's challenging. Um, again, I I I when I heard this, I was angry. <laughs> well, I guess it's good news. But I feel like you know I I could have saved a lot of Mornings during school, you know, and not riding to school to be with eighty-year-olds, and you know, I felt like it's it's kind of like I've been I've been paying a mortgage on this house, and it was free. That'd been nice to know seventeen years ago. And that's uh, but that's where Paul comes, and that's what we that's what about counting as? Let me ask you. Your assets and your liabilities. Where are you placing your confidence? What are you sitting in spiritually? Are you sitting in what you do for him? You've got to transfer your trust from what you've done for him to what he's done for you. And if that's true, and you put your faith in him, you know what the deal is? The bar is behind you. The bar is behind you. That means you are righteous in his sight. You declare it acceptable. You say, what would happen if I believe that? That's a good question. What would happen if you believe that? let's talk about spiritual assets Paul comes to see this and this is what he ends up saying that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death verse 11 that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead the Christian life is like a drama in three acts there's the beginning, the middle act and the end the beginning, I'll throw some words at it justification is the beginning Justification is being declared righteous. It's something that is given us. It's, it's a status that's conferred upon us. That's justification. It's being declared righteous. And you don't need to remember these words if you don't want to. Some of you, it might help because you've heard them and you say, eh, what's this? So that's justification. That's a gift. Sanctification is the process of being transformed into the image of Christ being transformed into someone who expresses your faith and love, becoming an authentic follower of Christ who expresses your faith and love. That's sanctification. It's the process of change. Justification is something that's given to you. Sanctification is something that happens. And then glorification is when we move out of these temporary shelters at death, move into a permanent shelter, In heaven with Him, exist in the form that Jesus exists in. And at that point, we're good. Not good, great. So there's Acts 1, Justification Act 2, Sanctification Act 3, Glorification. Um, forget the words, but relative to joy, Acts 1 and Act 1 and Act 3, being declared righteous and spending eternity with Him, there's joy in that. Uh, look what he says, um, Romans five, in your worship Father, Therefore, since we've justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him also, through Him we have also obtained access by faith in this grace which, in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's the joy of justification and glorification. I'm standing. The bar behind me, and I understand I am going to be there with him. And I can know that now. And there's some joy in that. And when I experience it, my joy will be multiplied eight zillion fold. Okay. Out Acts 2, there's some surprise here. Look what it says. Not only that, but we rejoice in our, we have joy in our sufferings. Again, that's a tough, this is a tough pill to swallow. I could see joy in being declared righteous. Joy in spending eternity with him. There's joy in that. But joy in sufferings. How does that work? Let's read on. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christian faith has joy rejoices in two things christian faith rejoices in christian certainty the certainty that because christ's work is finished anything jesus leave out would you would you call it a question that he got over the bar anybody call that into question he didn't make it uh, nice try didn't make it now jesus isn't he didn't clear the bar anybody believe jesus didn't clear the bar no, of course he cleared the bar. Nothing to add. So, um, uh, there, what that means is that there is a certainty there. Jesus cleared the bar, and if I put my faith in him, am I clearing the bar just as certain as his is? Again, it all depends where you're sitting. Are you sitting in what you have or haven't done? Then, have you been declared righteous yet? If, if it's, it's not clear, is it? Have you done enough? Have have you? Have you done enough of the do's? Have you done too much of the don'ts? Done How about Jesus? Are there any do's he didn't do? Any don'ts that Jesus did? If you put your faith in Christ on the basis of what he did, can you be sure about your eternal destiny? Can you be sure? You can. You can be. Because his job is done. It's done. And if you're putting your faith... In a finished work, how much work do you need to do? If you put your faith in a finished work, how much work is left to be done? How much? None. If you believe that, what would happen? Ooh. That leads to the second thing. Um, talk about Christian faith rejoices in certainty, but it also rejoices in the uncertainty. That's what it says. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Um, Endurance is standing in a place that you'd rather not be. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance is to remain under a place that you would get out if you could, but you can't. So you're standing in a place you don't want to be. And you're waiting for somebody to rescue you. You're waiting to be able to get out of it. You're waiting for your ship to come in. You're waiting for the check to come. You're waiting for the situation to change, for the relationship to change. It doesn't. You wonder, why am I standing here? I thought you loved me. I thought we had a deal. I thought I was righteous. Why am I going through what I'm going through? Suffering produces endurance. The ability to stand in a place that you'd get out of if you could, that is indispensable to becoming An authentic follower of Christ who expresses your faith and love. You cannot become that without learning to stand in a place you'd rather not be. Sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces provenness. Provenness. Character is provenness. And What happens when you take something like gold and put it through a refining process? When it's done going through this process, what I can know is that this ring is authentic. It's gold. How can we determine if what we have with God is real? When it says, sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces provenness. When you've walked through things and got on the far side of them, there's a sense of the foundation is real. I have experienced it. Not only do I believe it, but I've seen it at work in my life. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope is Christian certainty. Hope is Christian certainty. Endurance, provenness, assurance. Here's the deal. You're going to go through some things that are difficult. It's not a sign that you're not loved or not righteous. It's a way for God to develop you into the image of Christ. That is something Jesus needed to do. Jesus did everything right, but he had to live in places that he didn't want to live. Uh, that's not great news, but it is true. It says, hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is a true thing. This is a true thing. If you want, and it's necessary to be transformed for the roots of your faith to go deep into his love. If that's something that we want, that's something that requires time in the wilderness. If we have what we want, we don't long intensely for God's love. We don't need it. But if you look around and you're seeing things in people's face, impatience, and and there's things in your life that you look that you... You don't have what you want. You have to then, what are you doing? Keep looking there. And focus on his commitments to you. God, I don't like where I am, but I guess suffering produces endurance, and endurance, provenness, and provenness, hope. So I'm going through this thing not because you don't love me, but because you do. And as I go through this process, the roots of my faith get driven. Down into your love, and I end up having a deeper awareness of your love, something deep. I think all of us would like to know God's love deeply. I want you to listen to me. It is not possible without going through difficulty. It just isn't. It just isn't. Again, what am I, we jump up and down about that? No. But I think in some places within us, some of you have been asking, what have I done wrong? Why am I in this trial? You haven't done anything wrong. You haven't done anything wrong. God does never lead strangers into the wilderness, only his children, to bring the roots of their faith deeper into his love. Okay, here's a question. How do we keep going then? How do we keep going? It's tiring standing in place in things that you don't want to experience. What do we do? Lazarus, look what it says. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creation is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's happening, the, the, at the time this letter is being written, individuals had gone from Jerusalem in the early days when they, they experience as Christians was kind of nice. People were selling their land, and things were being passed around, and it was very communal and pretty safe, and then there were some persecutions and some famines, and then people were forced, Jewish Christians were forced to go into the Roman Empire, and uh, it wasn't so easy for them. They were not accepted by Jews, and they weren't accepted by Gentiles. They were third culture people and they really didn't have any place they were could belong. That was one thing for them to experience, but then when their kids grew up, that's what their kids were experiencing. They couldn't get into the good schools. They couldn't get the good job. So these people who had embraced their faith in Christ are looking at it 15 or 20 years in the rearview mirror saying, I'm out. I'm out. I can't do this anymore. I'm having to stay in this place working for somebody I don't want to work for, and I'm trying to endure but I can't. And some are bailing out. And he writes this letter, um, says the word of God is living and active. It points to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know what we tend to do? We tend to stand on our ability to impose our will on ourself. We impose our will on ourself. On what basis can I be confident that I'm going to be who God wants me to be? I have determination. That's why. <laughs> I have will and control. You know what the Word of God does? It strips our ability to put our confidence in what we do. Then what the Word will say, okay, you're. but did you understand that in order for you to go over the bar on the basis of what you do, that you have to control not just your actions, but your thoughts? Oh gosh, thoughts. I'm not doing that as well. I mean, anybody resentful ever? Remorseful ever? Anybody ever covet? What the Bible does, it brings us to a place where we stand before God naked and exposed. I, I'm not gonna make it. Some of you understand that feeling to be naked and exposed. It's not a good feeling, but it is what's supposed to happen. It is the, first, it's it ends up being productive. It talks about being naked and ashamed. He ends up encouraging. his. Well, look at where it ends in verse 16. Okay, you're standing in verse 13, naked and ashamed. You know, wanting to find reason to believe that because of what you do, you is going to get let in, but you're like somebody who showed up to a party in, in your birthday suit. And I'm not very confident I should be able to walk in here. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. And we, and then in, that's where we find ourselves, naked. And, and then in verse 16, I'm entering the throne of grace with confidence. <laughs> How do you get from here to here? There's really a question. Because entering the throne of grace with confidence literally means speaking freely. One of the cheap things... That you got as a Roman citizen was Parresia, the ability to speak freely in the public forum. If this was in Rome and you're a Roman citizen and something is being debated, and you, have, you know, <clears throat> if you're a Roman citizen, you're going to be safe. If you're not a Roman citizen, somebody's going to throw you in jail. There's no right to speak freely unless you're a citizen. And what he says, I want you, if you're declared righteous through faith in Christ, come to the throne of grace and speak freely. Speak freely. Pattern prayers. I learned a lot of pattern prayers growing up. Our Father, what in heaven? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And then there's a lot of different... Those kind of prayers are good. But I really needed, and some of us understand this, to develop the ability just to speak freely with them. It takes a long time, doesn't it? Especially to be honest with Him. To be honest about things that you don't feel real good about, you feel kind of naked about, you know, I'm really not good at this and I'm not good at that. What he says, come to the throne of grace and speak freely. Would you agree with me that it's a long journey from this to that? What leads you from point A to point C? Exposed and vulnerable, confident and free access. You know what is the bridge between those things? If you're naked and ashamed, what do you need? Do you need judgment? you need somebody to point out? Look at you. Look at you. Is that helpful? That helpful? That help you love? That give you joy? You know what you need? If you're naked and ashamed, what do you need? I'm thinking of a word. Thinking of a word. It has to do with somebody who understands what that feels like. You know what word I'm thinking of? Sympathy. If you're naked and ashamed, and somebody comes by who understands, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly how you feel. Come on, let's go talk to the Father. That would be a person to have, wouldn't it? That's Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. Jesus is the one that bridges the gap between feeling exposed and going into the presence of the Father. How much time do you spend thinking about the fact that Jesus really understands how you feel? You say, you know, yeah, fine. My family's torn apart. Hmm." You think Jesus might understand what it's like to feel like a part of a family and not feel like part of a family? To feel both included and not included? You think Jesus understands that? You know what, at work, um, does Jesus understand what it's like to go out and and be treated in a hostile manner? Is Is there anything Jesus doesn't understand? And you know what, the fact is, he came so that he could understand and he could sympathize with you. You're gonna to need to endure. You know what I would encourage you to do, and we're done. In fact, worship team, come on up. Um, there's a couple spiritual assets. There's a couple spiritual assets. A lot of liabilities. The sympathy of the sun is a spiritual asset that few, that I'm aware of, pick up. The sympathy of the sun. You can't go from here to there without the sympathy of Son. Here's my encouragement this morning. Make more room for the sympathy of Jesus in order to get you to the throne of God to be honest with God. The sympathy of Son leading into the mercy and grace of the Father. We pray for us, Father. Thanks for the purposes that you put in place, and for the ways—not just what you ask, but how. Righteousness is conferred upon us, and, and as we lean on the sympathy of the Son and enter the presence of you, Father, you we receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You wouldn't have a struggle alone, stand in place alone. That's why you want us to understand that you do understand. And as we rely on that sympathy, it gives us strength. And we find endurance leading to a sense of provenness, provenness leading to hope. And the roots of our faith go a little bit deeper into your love. Thanks that we don't have to do this alone. We can walk together. pray that you would enable us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.